Hello, greetings. Thanks for joining us today, and thank you for your interest in spiritual matters and giving us the gift of spending time together as we explore what God has made known in Christ. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples in Los Angeles. Please subscribe to us where you found us. Comment on, on your thoughts and this conversation. Uh, and you can find us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. As we've lived through this COVID-19 pandemic, we've heard a soundbite that's kind of encapsulated a whole idea and posture, and that is to love your neighbor. And this was a way to encourage observation of social distancing guidelines, mask mandates, lockdown orders to get vaccinated, and things like that. And it's really an attempt to encourage a person to consider not just themselves, but also their community and other people that might be more strongly impacted by COVID-19 and an infection like that than perhaps they would be. But how should we really love our neighbor during a pandemic? And what does it really mean to love your neighbor anyway? Which is a good question to consider whether there's a pandemic going on or not. But the COVID-19 pandemic in particular certainly provided us a stress test, so to speak, for communities and their strength and, and, and the resilience that communities were able to show. But the question about what it means to love one's neighbor and how to relate to one's neighbor is as live as ever. And so what does it really mean? And when we talk about it, so many times we want to rush right to, uh, such as Christians looking at certain passages, that we kind of forget to actually answer the question. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? This command is first given in Leviticus 19 and verse 18. And it's part of what's called the Holiness Code. And it's called that because starting in Leviticus 19, you've got uh, a series of laws given that begin with this declaration in verse 2, that you must be holy because I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And so the idea is that everything here is how are you holy like God is holy. And what do you have? A series of commands to not fully harvest your field, but to allow gleaners to come and to eat and to live off that uh, excess, to not steal or to tell lies, to not deal or swear falsely, to not oppress or steal from your neighbor to hold, or hold back wages. You shouldn't mistreat the disabled. You should deal fairly in judgment. You should not go about slandering, and you should not do nothing when you see your neighbor in distress. Uh, and that's uh, verses 9 through 17. And then we have the statement uh, to love your neighbor as yourself, but it doesn't come just on its own. It's a conclusion uh, because a command is first given. Do not take vengeance and do not maintain a grudge against your, your neighbor, uh, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's underscored by the statement, I am Yahweh, which is said frequently to remind Israel that God is who he says he is and he's going to do what he says he will do. And so to love one's neighbor as oneself is to not do these kind of things. Um, most of them were negative prohibitions, right? You shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. And so we, to love our neighbor as ourselves means that we should not do those things. And so that's something that's true about what's said in verse 18, but I think also extends the entire passage. Uh, so to love one's uh, neighbor here, uh, we can see in context, uh, is definitely a summarization type message. Um, we see that even here in chapter 19 of Leviticus, that is trying to summarize, is trying to kind of distill uh, a bunch of different commands about how we treat other people. And therefore, uh, we also can see, since it's talking about a very narrow subset and how you treat your fellow Israelite, that you can see why there would be people who would just assume it would just refer to one's fellow Israelites. We look at how Jesus talks about it. We can see that he uses love your neighbor as yourself to summarize the law and the prophets. 
we can look at Mark 12, 20-34 as an example of this. There are many times where Jesus will talk about this. So we're using this example for a reason. Uh, there's a scribe that questions Jesus about what is the great commandment. And Jesus starts with Deuteronomy 6, 4-5, through 5, that God is one and that you should love Yahweh your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Then we have, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is considered the second command. And Jesus says that there are no commandments greater than this. Now, why do we look here at this verse? Well, look at what the scribe will then say. Uh, he provides his commentary, says what he is, Jesus taught is true, and that there is no other God than God, and to love him and one's neighbor is greater than sacrifice. And Jesus then said that the scribe was not far from the kingdom of God, in verses 32 through 34. And we point out this example to show that it's not just Jesus saying this. It's not just Jesus uh, coming up with this. This is not some kind of new or novel teaching. Uh, it's not considered controversial in Second Temple Judaism. We can see similar permutations of it found among the rabbis. Uh, the famous story of Hillel asked to taste Torah while he's on one foot, uh, just says, what is hatefully to you, do not do to your neighbor. Uh, the rest is go and commentary, go and learn it. Now, in Matthew's version of the story, Matthew 22 and verse 40, Jesus says that to love God and to love one's neighbor as yourself uh, is a summarization of the law and the prophets. And it's an important way of looking at it, that this is the law and the prophets, because in Matthew 7 and verse 12, Jesus says something similar. In everything, treat others as you would want them to treat you, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. So if Jesus can say, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, and this is the law and the prophets, and then in another passage saying, treat others as you would want them to treat you, this is the law and the prophets. And that's kind of the positive thing of what Hillel said, the negative, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. So we can see this is a very common teaching in Second Temple Judaism. And it, in and of itself, it's not controversial. That love God and love neighbor are the primary commands, and that you can look at everything else through those commands. And so Israelites could very easily see how love your neighbor as yourself distills all of the moral and ethical demands that God makes for his people and how they treated their fellow Israelites. And so the basic definition of to love your neighbor as yourself is to treat them the way you would want to be treated, to avoid causing him or her harm, and also to be there for them in their time of need. But there is this way that Jesus challenges the standard Israelite understanding of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, and we see it on two levels. And the first one is what we see in Luke 10, 25-37 with the parable of the Good Samaritan and the question, who is my neighbor? Where we have a lawyer asking Jesus about the commands in Luke 10, just like we did in Mark 12 and Matthew 20, and Jesus asked him what he thought, and here, what does the lawyer say, but to love God and love your neighbor? And this is another testimony of this universal pervasiveness of this understanding. Uh, this is not just a one-off. This is a, a commonly understood thing in Second Temple Judaism. But then the lawyer wanted to justify himself and said, well, who is my neighbor? And he's trying to narrow the definition to his fellow Israelite and understanding which, you know, you look at Leviticus and, and that could be sustained. And we're going to see that also in Matthew 5. And Jesus responded with the story we call the parable of the Good Samaritan in verses 30-35, a story that we're familiar with, uh, most likely, that there's a guy who was beaten up in, by robbers, a priest and Levite walk by, don't help him, and it's a Samaritan who has compassion on him, helps him out, um, and will provide for his needs. For our purposes, it's important to see two aspects to how, this, how Jesus tells this story and how Jesus expects a response. That in this story, 
the good neighbor is not the Israelite. It is not the man who has fallen among the thieves. It is clearly not the thieves. It is not the priest. It is not the Levites. It's the Samaritan. It's one of those that the lawyer would like to paint as the other. Uh, in the story, the Israelites are the robbers and the victim, the priest and Levite, and none of them look very good at the story's end. The person who comes out the best is the guy who got beaten up, and he doesn't look very good. Uh, and Jesus asked the lawyer, who proved to be the neighbor to that man who fell among the robbers? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan in verse 36. And so what Jesus is trying to do is provide an invitation to see that the one who loves one's neighbor as oneself proves to be a neighbor. That it's not inherently a geographic, relational, or tribal proximity, although that is a standard way of defining neighbor. And we're not arguing that that's not a way of defining neighbor. But Jesus wants to emphasize here that to love one's neighbor as oneself is what makes one a neighbor. The demonstration of love and grace and mercy. And so Jesus exhorts this lawyer, and by extension the rest of us, to go and show mercy. To go and be the neighbor to others, regardless of how they would treat you, whether they would treat you as a neighbor, that you need to go and be that neighbor. So we see there how Jesus is kind of really transforming that understanding there uh, in that story, and also in Matthew 5, 43-48. And the real crescendo of this contrast uh, is here. He, he begins with this, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And there's a lot of controversy about what he means by that. Uh, he's, a lot of people say, well, that's a Pharisaic distortion of the meaning of the law. But I believe you can defend that as, a, as an understanding of what the law is saying. Uh, because you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but the, within Deuteronomy itself, we see that uh, all of these pagans around them, the Canaanites and others, are to be devoted to destruction. And so uh, he challenged Israelites to go beyond that. And he says, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who would persecute you. To what end? That you may be like your heavenly father, who makes the rain fall upon the just and the unjust, that there are blessings that he gives to the righteous and to the wicked alike. And then he asked them in a rhetorical way, uh, what benefit or reward should they get for doing the bare minimum? Uh, if you love those who love you, what is that to you? I mean, tax collectors and Gentiles do that, right? Uh, or to greet your fellow people. Uh, that's nothing. And this is why Jesus then says that you need to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect in verse 48. Uh, the Lucan parallel is very instructive, by the way, in the, what is called the Sermon on the Plain, where we first see the golden rule, you know, what, what you would have people do to you, so do to them. Uh, that if you lend with the expectation of repaying, what's that to you? Because sinners will do that to receive the same amount. Uh, so Christians, therefore, should love enemies to do good, to lend without expectation of repayment, so they can be like God and to be merciful as God is merciful in Luke 6, 32-36. And we'll see an echo of this in a later situation where Jesus is really the least great uh, guest at a uh, feast that he's given in chapter 14 of Luke, where he will tell the person who serves the feast, you know, don't go and invite the kind of people who will invite you back to feast yourself. Go invite the people who will never be able to repay you for your feast, and you will be re rewarded in the resurrection of the just. 
And this is something that's really challenging for, for Jewish people then and Christians to this day. Uh, because tribalism is a continual temptation for us. Uh, and we need to anchor ourselves in this picture of the, of the church that is given to us in Ephesians 2 and 3. That it's a community of people made one by the blood of Christ. And that whatever would divide them in the world is less and should be made less than what would unite them in Christ. And to do good to those who would harm us is very counterintuitive. If people harm us, we're going to try to find ways to put up protective measures so that we don't keep getting harmed. But we can see the letter of 1 Peter, where that's what was going on to Christians in the first century in Asia Minor. And Peter keeps telling them, go and do good anyway. Entrust yourself to a faithful creator while doing good, even if it leads to your persecution and distress. So we can see where loving your neighbor as yourself uh, was a hardship, can be a hardship, and we can also see how that's not made any easier by things that have changed uh, in our society to this day. And a, one of those major issues is even how we start conceiving of the relationship between ourselves and our neighbor. Because uh, it's not like the ancient world had only one model society, right? It's not like everybody had part of a cookie-cutter thing. But all the different models that existed still were much more communally minded than Western society today. And we can see the overwhelming success of the philosophy of liberalism. We're not necessarily talking about what goes by the name of political liberalism, but the philosophy of liberalism, which ironically is seen in its most pure form in America in the libertarian movement. Uh, and, and the success of that is very clear in the corrosion of the bonds of community that's taken place in the past 250 years. Because our society has glorified and has advanced the interests of the individual above and beyond the welfare of the community time and time again. Our ancestors, by necessity in many respects, and for a lot of other reasons, uh, understood the interdependence of all people and understood that there was responsibility and restraint that was necessary for a community to function. And these kinds of responsibilities and restraint we have decided to remove because they are the shackles of a previous age and we feel that they unduly burden people. And there's no doubt that there were some of those shackles that we can see did definitely uh, burden people significantly. But the challenge is, is that we have interpreted freedom absolutely in individual terms. That arguments that are framed in terms of protecting people's freedoms automatically seem to receive a lot more credence in our modern society than any other. And this is not just one side of the aisle over the other. Uh, there's a lot of freedom today that exists in terms of money and sexuality because you have those among the Democratic Party who will emphasize one and Republicans will emphasize the other. And each side gets their way most often in terms of where they emphasize personal freedom. Uh, that is why we can see in, in this in a very bizarre situation that we have, where we have both sides right now in this very moment uh, in, in this pandemic uh, talking about my body, my choice. For those on the left, it's about uh, women and uh, matters of abortion. On the right, it's about uh, vaccination, mass mandates, and things of that nature. Um, they're using the same argument because that argument about autonomy is about freedom and independence. It's about this uh, really... Uh, classically liberal concept of, of individual freedom. And we can see this as COVID-19 has played out as a public health emergency. And I want to be very clear that uh, it's very easy to get negative. And we need to remember that the 
pandemic has brought out the best in many people. And we've seen uh, concern for other people, assistance for other, uh, others, uh, people who have cared for others in beautiful ways. And we don't want to diminish that or dismiss that. But we've also seen the lengths that people are going to go to to assert their rights to exercise their freedom, even though it comes at the expense of others. Uh, and, and it's one of those things, public health especially, is one of those ways where you can see that we are not truly independent, that the air that we breathe is also breathed by other people, and that other people's uh, free will decisions will absolutely affect uh, our ability to make free will decisions. And the reason that we bring all this up is because when it comes to love your neighbor as yourself, there are some who would imagine that to do that means to leave them alone and let them do whatever they want to do. As if the goal really is that for all of us to do whatever we want to do and leave everybody else alone and doing whatever they want to do. And that might seem to be a libertarian's paradise, but that's not the way it can be for the people of God. As we saw back in Leviticus 19, Notice that part of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself was not to stand by idly if your neighbor's life is at stake in verse 16. Uh, the priest and Levite left the man who had fallen among robbers alone, and that's why they were condemned in Luke 10, 25-37, that they had not proven to be the neighbor to that man. That the command to love one's neighbor as yourself demands a care, a concern, for your neighbor. And that is demonstrated indeed. That's what we expect in Matthew 5, in Luke 10, and other passages. That's why it's important to see in 1 Peter 2 and verse 16, where Peter will say that live as free people, but do not use uh, your freedom as a pretext to do evil, but to be a slave or servant of God. That John rebukes Christians in 1 John 3, 11 through 18, that if they do not help their fellow uh, Christians in need, they're murderers. Now, that's a really sharp statement, but the opposite of love is indifference. And if we're indifferent to our fellow man, we prove contributors uh, to their helpless estate. Now, beyond the fraying of these communal bonds is also uh, the general hostile posture that a lot of Christians have, not just toward the world, uh, but even toward those in the world. And we can understand where that hostility would come from, because in John 16, 33, uh, Jesus told Christians they would have suffering and tribulation in the world. James has warned us in James 4 and verse 4 that friendship with the world is enmity toward God, that we're not to love the world or its lusts in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And John also tells us in chapter 3 and verse 13 that we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us. And it's very easy to kind of maximize these passages and to develop a very bunker or circle the wagons mentality uh, where we're trying to keep out everybody and everything and to try to maintain ourselves in the love of God. But how can we really love our enemies if we keep that kind of uh, hostile posture up toward them? And to this end, it's really instructive to look at a couple of really strange examples from Abraham and Isaac that we can find in Genesis chapter 12, chapter 20, and chapter 26. Uh, there are a lot of questions here, because in Genesis 12, uh, we can maybe understand it the first time, where Abraham goes down to Egypt, he's just convinced that there's no, that, that, you know, they're concerned that, well, they're going to try to, you know, uh, take my beautiful wife and kill me. And so he tells Sarah to say, hey, you're my sister. And so they do that, Pharaoh says, oh, you're your sister, Pharaoh takes her, marries her, then there's all these trouble, and of course discover, well, she's not... Uh, his sister is also uh, her, his wife. And uh, then, you know, he's given back to Abraham, and Abraham is sent on his way. Um, 
the story then repeats itself in chapter 20, long after everything else has taken place. Now he is in this land to the south uh, in Israel, and Abimelech is king over it. And he does the same thing again, and Abimelech again takes her as his wife, and, and all the women can no longer conceive because of this. And Abimelech just straight up asks him, what are you doing? Why did you do this? And Abraham says, look, I was convinced there's no fear of God in the land. They're going to try to kill me and to take her. Therefore, I say that she's my sister. I'm not technically wrong uh, because we do share one parent. She's my half-sister. And if that weren't bizarre enough, then in chapter 26, we see Isaac and Rebekah doing this. And of course, at least with Abraham and Sarah, I mean, Sarah is at least his half-sister. Rebekah is a cousin uh, of Isaac. Uh, It's not even uh, that close. Uh, But there's another king of Bimelech, and they do the same thing again. And what's going on there? A lot of story idea things going on. It's very odd, very strange. But it's important to note that it's the same story repeated three times. The Genesis author is not the dunce that many want to make him out to be. He's a very deliberate storyteller. Why is he telling this story time and time again about two men who are patriarchs? And in fact, these are some of the most questionable, challenging things that these men have done. This is definitely where they have their weakness. And what's going on is that in each one of these instances, Abraham and Isaac are assuming the worst about the people among whom they sojourn. They're assuming there's no fear of God in the land. They're going to do what they want to harm me so they can get to my woman. And in doing this, in this each time, Abraham and Isaac are inducing or tempting the leader of the people to sin by committing adultery. And in the reactions, Pharaoh and the Bimelechs are very disturbed by this. And they're rightly disturbed by this. Now, now maybe you want to try to find a way of giving Abraham and Isaac the benefit of the doubt and say, well, they didn't sin in this. Uh, Even if you're going to try to do that, we see that it's definitely, they're not coming out looking good. In all these stories, uh, Pharaoh and Abimelech are made to look more righteous. That the uh, that when Abraham and Isaac decided, well, these people just don't have the fear of God in the land, uh, they lead to a situation where uh, the first people they think don't fear God actually seem more righteous than they do. And I think these examples are given there for a reason, and to remind us that if we assume the worst about those among whom we sojourn, we can easily rationalize immoral conduct of our own, and we might be very quickly proven to be less righteous than our neighbors. And this again speaks to a very difficult tension as we as Christians are to live in, that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, and therefore we need to think the best of our neighbor. We need to act honorably in the sight of all men in Romans 12. We need to do good as we have opportunity in Galatians 6 and verse 10. But at the same time, we need to realize and recognize that the world's going to be hostile to them, to us, and to our faith, and that our neighbors that we have helped might be the ones who cause us great grief. Now, it's very easy to take comfort from the Jeremiah's about how awful our society and its people are. And we might take comfort from that bunker or circle the wagons mentality. But are those mentalities, are those Jeremiah's really encouraging us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to seek the welfare of the place in which we live? Or are they justifications for withdrawal from other people in society and for hostility? And this really hinders our ability, even willingness, to prove to be the neighbors to those around us, to embody Christ to them. And they cause us a lot of difficulty. Okay, so when we look at the story, we look at the challenges, ancient and modern, what does it mean to love one's neighbor as oneself? 
Well, we need to seek to be the neighbor to everyone in whom we come into contact. And um, even many that we may not come directly into contact with. That we need to realize that we are interdependent, not as independent as we might imagine. That we need to consider more than ourselves and our own interests in every circumstance. The kind of the mindset modeled there in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. That we don't live in isolated and permeable bubbles, and we shouldn't want to live in isolated and permeable bubbles. That we need to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 24 to everyone if we're going to be the neighbor. That whatever we think and feel and say and do, we need to think not just of ourselves and our own interests, but also of the interests of others in the community. And it's also not just good enough to be well-intentioned. We actually must do it. We must display the mercy. Uh, how many times have we been more like the priest or Levite in Luke 10, 25-37, and just gone our own way? I mean, we don't really know what the priest or Levite are thinking. Maybe they feel for the guy, but you know they have all the excuses in the world, right? Performative righteousness and mercy are tempting and easy. Um, we can see that everywhere. But it's a lot harder to love and care for and show mercy toward our fellow human beings. And that's what James is really trying to get us to think about in James 2, 1 through uh, 17. Uh, John in 1 John chapter 3. Because to be the neighbor is to be like the Samaritan and actually doing it and actually helping people. And we cannot love our neighbor as ourselves while we assume the worst about our neighbor. And that's the lesson we get from Abraham and Isaac. Maybe there's more fear of God in our land than we might imagine. It's not a combination of naivete, that we should absolutely expect hostility from the world, and there are going to be people who mistreat us despite the good we have done. But at the same time, we must resist that hardening against our neighbor. We need to be open toward them in love and mercy and charity, however they might try to treat us. And that is how we are to be the neighbor, and thus to love our neighbor as ourselves. May we do that and share in that resurrection of life in God and Christ. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the love that you've given us, the blessings, your care and provision, the covenant loyalty that you have expressed toward us. Uh, we're thankful for all the many uh, blessings you've given us in Jesus and in the Spirit and the Word uh, and through one another and the health and prosperity that we enjoy. And uh, we'd never want to take any of these for granted. We're mindful there are many who are still ill from COVID-19 or other illnesses. We pray that you would heal them. We pray that you would um, provide comfort for those in pain and, and distress and grieving. We pray that you would preserve life wherever it is in danger and provide for those who are in need, that your justice around us would flow in the land, and that the, the powers and principalities would seek to glorify your name and advance your purposes. We pray, Father, that you would give us the wisdom, strength, and ability to be proved to be the neighbor to those around us, that we may love our neighbor as ourselves to seek uh, his interests as well as our own, uh, that we resist being hardened against them, that we understand that we all have uh, interdependency and are connected to one another. We pray that we would uh, we have the resources to be able to provide uh, for one another in our time of need and that we would continually be able to uh, love our neighbor ourselves, to be that neighbor, uh, toward, especially toward those in the household of faith, but even toward those who are outside, and that all may see and glorify the, uh, the name of your Son, Jesus, in us. Uh, we pray for the strength and ability to do so until your Son returns, and we look forward to that day earnestly. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
We're again so thankful that you've joined us. Love to hear what you'd like to think about uh, loving your neighbor as yourself and the challenges that come with that. Uh, we pray that uh, this has been a benefit to you. Please reach out to us and, and let us know what you think in the comments. Subscribe to us. And you can find us at VenetianChristChrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We again thank you. Have a great day.